0: In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasure of God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the uh, chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Bethelshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, with Daniel, perhaps not the whole book, but uh, you know the, the good stories. You know the the Lion's Den and the Fiery Furnace, and we're actually singing a bit of the, a line from, you know, Stands in the Fire Within Us, so so beside us. But from those stories, that you maybe heard in Sunday School as a kid, you know, you have some grasp of the kind, the calibre of man that Daniel was. Uh, and of course, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Although, as a kid, I always called Abednego. You know, it's usually some sort of flexible gymnast or something, but uh, yes, I've, I've, I now know it's Abednego. So. But here are four young men who have been taken out of the world that they know. Uh, they've, they've taken from home, they're placed in this this city that's just completely alien to what they know. It's the, not just their, their family life, but their community, their, their, their public worship, you know, and therefore how the days and the weeks were actually were, were, were set aside, and you know, they would know because of the Sabbaths and the feasts. Their whole calendar was upset, so it's completely alien alienated to them, so... You sort of think, what would, what would we do? You know, what would you do? Uh, how would we react in such a situation as they encountered? Um, now, you might think, it's so far removed, you know, from our world that there's nothing that we can learn. There's nothing, you know, especially just from these seven verses. We haven't even got to the exciting bit yet. But if you bear with me, hang in there, and hopefully I can sort of show you two things tonight that uh, that we can take from these verses. And one is that God is in active control of history. God is in active control of history. And two, we have an active part to play in his story. And the book of Daniel is really easy to place in history, uh, just from all the sort of surroundings and the the dates that we have. So it's actually in 597 BC uh, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes and defeats Judah. And we know at this stage that Israel has been divided, into two kingdoms, in the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom for over 300 years. And the Northern Kingdom, which is also confusingly called Israel, has been in exile. They were captured by the Assyrians over 120 years at this point. And really, the Southern Kingdom, Judah, should have learned their lesson. You see, Moses, before they actually went into the Promised Land, they were given this command. and. They were told that if they didn't keep the covenant, that they would be driven out of the, the land of Canaan, just like they were driving the people out. And Deuteronomy 28 uh, gives many horrific curses for uh, breaking the covenant, but none more demeaning uh, to the Israelites than Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, which states, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you will set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers uh, have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. You see, for the people of Israel, uh, their whole identity was wrapped up, that they were God's people. They were living in God's land, and in his holy city, in Zion, and that they were set apart, you know, as a light to the nations, and they were set apart for God. And... To actually think that they would be taken out of this land and to be serving meaningless gods whenever they served the one true God of creation, well, that, that's that's a real shock to their system. So they knew it was coming. Uh, God told them it would happen, and, and now it finally does. Um, here we see Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And we're, we're not given a lot of details in Daniel here, but... We can actually find a little bit of, of uh, this uh, narrative in 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings 24, verse uh, 11 and fo- to 14 says, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city where his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials, The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon king of Israel had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. It's pretty bleak stuff, you know, but if we look in verse 2, Daniel 1 here, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So it was actually, you know, it was, it was God that did this. And before, uh, you, you might have read this and thought, Why would God give his nation, his people, into, into the hands of another nation? But as we've seen from Deuteronomy, this was a result, direct, a direct result, the consequence of not keeping the law. Lord said he would bring them and their king to another land. And here, as we see in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar takes the people from their land back to Shinar. Uh, Shinar is an interesting place. Uh, in Genesis 11, it's actually the plain where all the people in the world decided to settle and to build uh, a tower with its top in the heavens uh, and to make a name for themselves. And we now know that as you know, the Tower of Babel. And... You know, the similar similarities there, Babel, Babylon. It's it's a name that sort of reoccurs itself throughout the Bible. It's it, sometimes it's a physical kingdom, and sometimes it's a figurative. That it's a name that is synonymous with the evil of this world. It's the the evil that is completely opposed to God's rule and reign. Um, it's this recurrent theme throughout the Bible. That uh, say you know it's God's city versus the city of the world, Jerusalem against Babylon, and that's what we see here. God's people are taken from his city to the city of the world. But Nebuchadnezzar not only takes his people, he actually takes some of the the, uh, vessels from the house of the Lord and puts them, as it says here, uh, in in the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And this is ultimately a double affront to the Lord. He's taken both his people and these vessels. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar saying, Na, na 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 na, you know uh, your your holy things are my God's temple. So my God's better than your God. Um, but we know that, that God, in the future, ultimately, His sovereign hand resolves this whole situation. In Ezra one, verse one, we read that that about sixty years from, from now, from where Daniel uh, at this point, he, he says that he stirs up the house, the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia who has invaded and captured Babylon to fund the rebuilding of the temple. And in verse 7 of Ezra 1, uh, we learn that Cyrus decrees that these vessels are to return to their rightful home. And I'm not giving you this as some sort of a to tie it up in a pretty bow and say, oh look, it's a nice story. Look, here's the beginning, here's the end. But um, it's actually important because God stirred up Nebuchadnezzar to invade Judah and gave uh, Jehoiakim into his hand. And they also put it upon the heart of Cyrus to, to help rebuild the temple. See, God is, con- going on, it, God is in control of what is going on in the world. And in Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, what is God's purpose here in Daniel? Uh, what has God got planned for these exiled people? What's going? What's God doing putting Daniel and these and his mates in, in this place? Because yes, the nation had been cursed, you know, for what they they've done, uh, and, and they've as a whole they've been taken into this situation. Um, but there were obviously some faithful individuals and, and God was going to use them. And we know God works in the lives of, of these individuals to bless them and to show his goodness and mercy. But in, in order for these moments of greatness, Daniel and his friends needed to be prepared. They, they prepared to stand for, up for what they believe in and even when being subtly seduced by Babylon. Let's look down at verse three. So, you know, they see Nebuchadnezzar Commands his chief eunuch to bring some fine specimens uh, uh, from the Israelites into the palace to teach them their language and the customs. This is all part of the grand plan of uh, it's the nation of Israel to assimilate them into the into Babylon. Um, and, it, and it wasn't just a case let's tell them Babylonian they're Babylonians now. No, they made, took these uh, young noble noblemen from Israel and. They welcomed them and they gave them positions in the king's court, but also the plan of absorption kind of goes two ways. There was an element of bringing the good things from Israel into their empire in this process of assimilation. And I was thinking about this, um, being a bit of a geek, I was reminded of the the Borg in Star Trek. If you ever watched Star Trek, and you know the, the, they were this sort of the Borg, they're like a, a conquestorial collective that roam the galaxy trying to take over it, you know, and they, whenever they would ambush, uh, you know, anyone, they would say, we are the Borg. You will be assimilated. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to serve us. Resistance is futile. And (laughs) I suppose this is a bit like Babylon in the sixth century BC, because the king asks for those who are skillful in, in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning. So he's gathering around himself these uh, sharpest minds of the nations so that he conquers so that the collective wisdom of the empire is improved. Yet we read in verse 5 that they will be educated for three years and at the end of that time they will stand before the king. And we could actually probably paraphrase this as indoctrinated for three years, uh, you know, the completely brainwashed into sort of Babylonian thinking. Uh, So who knows what these young Jewish lads were being force-fed. Talking about being fed, the king actually allocates them a portion of his table to feed them. And it does seem generous that the king would offer his food, but the likelihood was that many of the the unlucky exiles were probably in servitude to the new king, Um, meaning that by taking this food, these young men might look like they've turned their back on their fellow exiles. Uh, In fact, we know from the rest of Daniel chapter one, that they refused to defile themselves of the king's food uh, and of his wine, uh, and they asked for vegetables and water instead. Now, there may have been a chance that this meat was unclean, or perhaps it was offered ritually to the deities of Babylon, and so although it might have not been unclean, it would still not have been meat that they wanted to eat if it had been used in worship. However, there seems to be a deeper issue here, and it's surrounding the actual source of provision. It's not that God's law required veganism or sobriety, but it seems that God used this as a way of sh- of showing that it was by His hand alone that Daniel and his friends thrived, and it also gave them that solidarity with the other Israelites, showing that they hadn't lost sight of their nationality and that. The assimilation wasn't complete, and in the quest for assimilation, uh, Ashpanaz, he gave them names, and it, he he this, these he gave them new names that sort of distanced themselves from their former culture, for, you know, to fracture their sense of identity, uh, and he it, it perhaps even if they ended up doing like good deeds, which we do know that they do these good deeds, then they would have Babylonian names that would look good for the empire. But, you know, when they, when they do these good, great deeds, we know that God uses it to, for his glory. And these new names are actually an important way of distancing them from their culture and from their God because uh, the, it linked them with the, the gods of Babylon, these deities called Bel, Nebu, and Aku. See, Daniel means God is my judge. But his new name, Belshazzar, means O lady, wife of Baal, protect the king. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. But Shadrach means command of Aku, which is the moon god. Mishael means who is what God is. Yet Meshach says who is like Aku. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. And Abednego means Servant of the Shining One, Nebu. So by giving them these new names and by teaching them this new language and the new literature, the Babylonians they were offering them a worldview. They were, they, were, they were giving them this culture and this worldview that you know, was seductive to them, you know, that they, they could be part of this, like something, something greater than themselves. And we've seen this seduction already in three ways. So they were offering them status and influence. You know, their education, learning, being a wise man in the king's court in uh, material provision. You know, they've, they've the food and the drink. Uh, and if they were standing in the king's court, probably nice clothes, lodgings, you know. Um, and then and thirdly, they were offering them a worldview, this new language to speak, new literature to read, having new names and being part of this world-beaten empire. And these three things help us today to watch out for what, that which can make us take our eyes off the prize. See, Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14 says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There are so many distractions in this world. Uh, the world the world that we're supposed to leave behind and the world that we do leave behind whenever we come to know Christ. We're now part of his family, part of his kingdom. And the reality is that there's still a war going on between God's kingdom and the world. The world offers us status and influence to forget our status as children of God and co coerced with Christ. The world offers us material provision and comfort so that we neglect the comfort that God brings, which thankfully is completely independent of, of how good and, or bad things are for us. And the world presents us with a worldview, a culture to relate to, the right side of history to be on in order that we deviate from God's worldview, the God who created it and sustains it. But if culture makes us doubt God's word, then something is wrong with the culture and not with God's word, his truth keeps us on the straight and narrow. And it's what we look to, it's what we head towards. That's, that's where our focus is. You know, that's what sets our compass for life. So it's really a question of worship. And the, the much acclaimed American novelist, David Foster Wallace said in a speech that you've probably heard doing the rounds on Facebook. He says this, there's a speech called, uh, This is Water. And it says, there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you up alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty, and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when the time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud always on the verge of being found out and so on and he goes on to say in his speech that the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious, that they're the default settings, the kind of worship we gradually just slip into. And Wallace may not have found God, although if the stories of his avid searching for him are even half true, um, but I think we can all agree that he had a fairly clear picture of the human condition, because we do go to these default settings. And God's word tells us that's because of the fall and an inherent sinful nature that we humans have. It's why the object of our faith has to be God himself. And not to put a spoiler on it, but in Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Instead, they declare their loyalty to the most high God and resign themselves to accept the consequences. See, they didn't just reason in their heads, all right, guys, let's, uh, when the music plays, we'll bow down, You know, cross the fingers behind the back. Nobody will, nobody, nobody will know any different. We still worship Yahweh. No, they nail their colors to the mast. Because they, the, they realize that the power of worship, worship affects you, the worshiper. It orientates you that, towards that which you worship. And for us who have faith in Christ, we have a focal point for our worship. And we have these promises set against the subtle subductions of the world. So when the world offers us status and influence, we remember our status as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And when the world offers us material provision and comfort, we cling to the comfort that only Christ brings. And when the world presents us with a worldview, we hold on to God's truth. And the truth we find here in these few verses of Daniel one is that he is actively in control of history. The assurance that this brings it's immense. You know, knowing that God is in control of of history, knowing that God is in control of everything, even when we can't see that bigger picture, we know God is upholding this world and working for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and being chucked in that furnace, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, then, you God is in control. If he chose not to save them, then they would be with him in heaven. But if he did spur them, then the king would know of God's power. Now we all know how that episode turned out. Um, But for us, it's their attitude that should be our, our example. Whatever comes our way, we have to trust that God is in control. Because of Christ, we have assurance that God has saved us. Because of Christ, we have a family that we belong to for eternity. Because of Christ, There's a a kingdom that we belong to, that we can fight for. because of Christ, we know we're a child of God. Uh, It's like we were singing before. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a child of God. If we can actually grasp this, it will affect how we live out our lives. When we realize the place that we have in God's story, we can truly live for his kingdom. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, verse 16 to 20. I'm going to go uh, from 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth of which is your word and as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word you see we have a home in heaven see us Lewis, we, you know we he always said that we, you know, we have this feeling that we don't belong. We're made for somewhere else. And Jesus prayed it here. We have a home in heaven, in God's kingdom, yet we have a mission here on earth, a mission to live for this eternal kingdom. Just like Daniel and the exiles in Babylon, we need to look forward to God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have that you are in control. You're in control of history. You're in control of of the past, the present, and the future, Lord. And we just take so much confidence from that, Lord. Confidence to know that whatever situation or circumstances we come upon, Lord, we find ourselves in, Lord, we can with confidence cry out to you uh, and just to to, for us to see your hand in it Lord Father we we thank you that you've chosen us as we were singing earlier you chose us uh, even before the beginning the foundation of this world Lord Uh, and Lord we want to take up our position in this this plan we want to grasp a hold of the promises that you have given us, Lord. So, Lord, help us in our lives to make those choices, to say no to the world and to focus our eyes upon you, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would uh, bring glory to your name, just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did. Lord, be with us as we we, uh, continue to worship you, And as we go this week, Lord, just help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.